Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Del Bigtree, producer of the television show The Doctors and director of the movie Vaxxed. Um, hey, Del, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, March. I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be great. Okie doke. So Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Ashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. on Saturdays and 3 p.m. on Tuesdays at 101.9 FM KVSH. Of course, available online 24-7, marchtwisdale.com. Dell, I am so glad you took some time to join me today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It was really cool to meet you when you were up here in Washington rally about vaccine safety awareness. We met with politicians. In Washington, you have a great situation because you can still decide what's injected into your bodies and the bodies of your children, which is different than uh, California where I live. Yeah, we were talking earlier. I think your children are three and eight. Yes, I have a three-year-old little girl, an eight-year-old little boy. Like anybody and like any other parent, they are the focus of, of my life. I mean, I think it's the greatest thing we do is, is raise our children. And uh, I'm very happy to be able to be involved in that process. Right, right. I know kids are awesome. I love it. So I do appreciate that you came up to Washington because this is obviously a complex issue. So just so folks have a sense of where the show is going to go here, we're going to be covering, as always, a number of topics. First, we're going to take you sort of behind the scenes in Hollywood and give you a sense of what goes on in the creation of this show called The Doctors. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the fourth estate. That is the role that media plays in a successful and healthy democratic country. Then we're going to talk a little bit about some whistleblowers that are out there raising the flag and saying we have a few problems that need to be discussed openly so we can resolve them. And finally, we're going to talk about the World Mercury Project, which is obviously, as everyone knows, mercury is a huge issue on planet Earth right now. Pregnant women are told not to eat um, certain types of foods, such as swordfish or tuna fish while they're pregnant, because mercury is building up in the flesh of so many living creatures, and that includes humans. So we've got a whole bunch of cool stuff to cover today. Do you mind, Del, giving us some idea of what it was like for you to produce The Doctors and just sort of give us a sense of what that was like? Um, it was really a great show to work on. I was one of seven producers on the show. So when you do a daytime talk show that appears every day on television, you spend about eight months recording, I think, over 150 episodes. So each team is responsible for producing a whole show once a week. So it's a very high-paced, intense environment. And so my job as a producer was to fill the seven segments of content. So the seven segments between the commercials, I had to find guests, find stories, find doctors, and fill uh, that hour of content. And uh, on The Doctors, it's a very unique show. In fact, it was the first real medical talk show. We were followed shortly by Dr. Oz, who also has a great show. Uh, but in, in a way, we were competitors. And mm -hmm. uh, the show was created by Dr. Phil McGraw and his son, Jay McGraw. So I was previously a, a field producer on The Dr. Phil Show. So I traveled all over the nation 
interviewing families and, you know, couples going through whatever crisis they were going through before they were going to appear on the Dr. Phil show. Right. And then Dr. Phil decided with his son to create this new show, a medical talk show. And so I actually was asked uh, by uh, Dr. Phil to um, work with this new executive producer that was coming in to develop the Doctor's television show. So we test ran several uh, different episodes on Dr. Phil itself. That's actually how Dr. Phil was created. It's amazing when you put enough money and intelligence into your promotional work, you can get an idea out there in the world, can't you? Yeah, I mean, and Dr. Phil is a major success. I mean... People tell jokes. He makes it into comic books and all sorts of stuff. But he is one of the most successful TV entities in the world. Wow. Um, so the show has, has been a major success, and, and he's had other spinoffs. And so The Doctors was a great – I started out as a field producer. The producer comes up with an idea for the show or guest, and oftentimes on The Doctors, it's sort of like there's a great Santa Claus element to it where there would be a person who had some mysterious disease or – a major surgery that was needed they couldn't afford mm -hmm. and we would find the doctor with the cure or the doctor with some new cutting-edge surgery and bring them together where the person would be able to receive that surgery essentially for free and the doctor would get the visibility towards this new technique so you were doing you know you're, it was such a great opportunity to do great things for both sides uh, right. This new idea got out there, and, uh, and so I ended up in an OR. I, I've scrubbed into certainly several hundred surgeries myself uh, with doctors and stood right in there with a camera shooting surgeries for the first uh, about five years of my work on the doctors. Right. So real quick, so how long did you work with the doctors? I was on the doctors for six uh, seasons. Right. And so here you are, literally helping to create a show that illuminates new cutting-edge technology that respects and honors the amazing life-saving techniques. I mean, you love medicine. And we're talking allopathic medicine because when you're in surgery, you're dealing with Western medicine, you know. And then something happened in your life and caused you to recognize that there was an area of medicine that you could not bring onto the show or an issue you couldn't cover. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so just as you said, I am a fan of science. I'm a fan of great doctors in medicine, and there are some amazing healers out there uh, just doing fantastic things, and where science and technology is going is just astounding. But as you said, in the middle of that, you know, one of the things we always say in medicine, and The Doctors was an extremely medicine, medical-based, allopathic show, as you pointed out, we would always say vaccines are safe and effective. That's the official statement uh, the show would make and, and, and really all of medicine makes on a constant basis. As one of the seven producers, I did tend to do stories that were a little more controversial than my other producing partners. For instance, when Monsanto, uh, when their product glyphosate, which is in Roundup, it's an herbicide that's sprayed on over 80% of our crops, when the World Health Organization uh, ruled that glyphosate was probably carcinogenic to humans, um, I did a show on that. In fact, I was able to put together a debate between uh, a pharmacologist from Monsanto and, uh, and a, a GMO activist named Jeffrey Smith. So I have always been interested not only in great science 
but also when industries that are supposed to be uh, or directly deal with our health, and I think fall prey to making money over protecting citizens. So I was known to do stories like that. And because of that, I had some inside sources throughout the country in, in FDA and CDC and things like that. I was tipped off two weeks before William Thompson came forward, and the informant said that in two weeks there's going to be a whistleblower from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention who is going to say that they've committed scientific fraud specifically on the MMR, the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine study, looking at autism. I can only say as a journalist, these are one of those moments you kind of dream about. You, you dream about being that journalist that stumbles upon deep throat and comes up with this story or something right. like that. Those are the things we study, those are the things you cherish. Will I ever have that opportunity? This story sounded like that. If this was true, if the CDC, a government agency, had covered up a defective vaccine and put millions of children at risk, I believe that was going to be the biggest story in the nation. Um, and unfortunately, I was unable to do the story, as you, as you said, setting this up. You know, we were backed by pharmaceutical. We did commercials for Pfizer and Merck and Sanofi Aventis. It made sense that we wouldn't want to do a story that really made pharmaceutical industry look bad. And certainly, we didn't want to do a story that made the CDC look bad because they were friends of the show. Mm -hmm. Every time there was a flu outbreak or something, the CDC would invite the doctor's cameras in and we could get behind the scenes. Nobody wanted to mess up that relationship, so I couldn't touch the story. Right. But I assumed that other every other network that was not a medical talk show and not sponsored by the pharmaceutical industry would jump all over this. I mean, certainly CNN, MSNBC, Fox. I mean, this is the biggest medical story of my lifetime. So sure enough, two weeks went by. Dr. William Thompson's story popped up uh, on social media. Uh, it was being shared, that, and he, you could hear his voice saying, I feel ashamed every time I see an autistic child. I feel guilty. I can't believe we did what we did, but we did it. And crickets, not a single network covered the story. Mm -hmm. Not a single newspaper read, ran a headline that one of our top scientists from the Centers for Disease Control was claiming fraud on the vaccine safety research. And, and I want to point out that you know, I think we've all sort of become accustomed to the fact that our news is no longer this sort of free public entity where it has to be fair and balanced. Many laws took away that sort of fair and balanced approach. And we realize now it's a profit making program, just like everything else. But what shocked me was certainly a story about a whistleblower at the most important health agency, arguably in the world, saying that vaccines uh, were possibly unsafe because of fraudulent studies being done. I mean, that would have been the biggest story of the night, if not the week, if not the year, maybe of the decade. If you had headlines in New York Times saying top scientists claims scientific fraud at the CDC on vaccine studies, you know, New York Times would be out of Chapter 11. They wouldn't be having trouble selling one paper. They'd be selling two hard copy papers a day. You would have taken them out of bankruptcy with a story like that. Instead, nobody covered it. They didn't cover the fact that you have a top scientist, a whistleblower, just like we had in the tobacco industry, that changed our understanding of tobacco and showed us how the science was being manipulated. 
They didn't tell that story. They also didn't tell the opposite story, which could have been this crazy scientist has lost his mind at the CDC and is making unbelievable claims. And should we be looking at the mental health of our (laughs) top, you know, health agency? Instead, it was basically crickets, like you said. Right. Either way, you had a story. When nobody tells any part of the story, that's when I, as a journalist, uh, really start to get an icy cold feeling inside that something is wrong with our media and somehow it's interlaced with uh, our government and with industry and we have a real problem. I think freedom of speech may be hanging in the balance. So what we're talking about here is the fourth estate and I just want to, um, why don't you go ahead and um, mention what it was that Jefferson said about the fourth estate? Thomas Jefferson described the importance of the press as the fourth estate, the fourth branch of government. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially, it's the sort of the unwritten rule that this branch of government is the one that is supposed to always ask the hard questions, mm-hmm. to always hold the government's feet to the fire, to hold industry's feet to the fire, to never be afraid to investigate any story so that people could be informed and be able to make informed decisions, both how they voted what they paid for and bought with their dollars and what they took part in and what types of products they used. Well, so basically the fourth estate, you know, media, it was one of those things that you didn't have in Britain. So we have to always remind ourselves that we are basically British subjects who decided to free themselves from the British system and to create their own. So we have these deep roots and you did not have freedom of the press in Britain um, at the formation of this country, not the type of freedom that was necessary. And so the fourth estate, of course, is this thing that um, well, there's movies. Uh, what's that movie that came out a couple of years ago about how um, the Boston Globe basically got information about a whole bunch of Catholic priests who were um, molesting young boys. Spotlight. Yeah, right. Spotlight. We understand and recognize the importance and value of media as independent and journalists like the Deep Throat situation who, if they can find the story, the editor is not going to say no. If they can prove the story, then the newspaper will run the story. What's interesting right now is I think most people in America would agree that the money of corporate interest has so interwoven itself in not just funding and supporting media agencies, but actually owning them, that the idea of mainstream corporate media in America being independent is what, bonker? I mean, like, I don't think anyone actually believes corporate media is independent. That's why we call it corporate media. But I disagree with you. I, I think we have a problem that most of the citizens of this country believe that their media is telling them the truth. That's and a fair telling point. them the whole story. You know? Okay, I, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we don't know what people in America think, but what we do know is that... We have a very corrupted fourth estate, just like our regulatory agencies are corrupted with the nice little revolving door. And basically, corporate corruption and money corruption is rampant in the country, whether people know it or not. But what's fascinating is that you mentioned, for example, the Vioxx scandal. Tell us about Vioxx. Yes. 
Yeah, so Vioxx was a drug that, that Merck put out that essentially in court, um, it was proven that they killed over 50,000 people. There are sources that say that number goes up into the hundreds of thousands, but the court stuck with 50,000 people were killed by a drug that Merck in its own uh, pre-licensing phase of testing had discovered caused heart attacks. And it was proved in the court that they hid that detail of their research from the FDA upon approval. Now, that's um, what's so, important right there, that piece. Because when, so when we have the FDA's job, is most people don't really understand what the FDA is supposed to do or the CDC is supposed to do. They're different. So the FDA is literally the gatekeepers. They are the ones, so you have a bunch of pharmaceutical companies and they say, we have all these great product ideas. We've studied them, blah, 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 and we want permission to sell them in America. And the FDA stands there and says, okay, you have to proved us that they match our definition. We're going to come back to this FDA definition of what's called safe and effective. When they talk about safe and effective, and I, because I know this, so it gives me the heebie-jeebies when, when people just spit out, you know, this or that is safe and effective. And I'm like, ooh, in the common language, safe means it won't hurt you and effective means it does what it says it's going to do. That's what the common people hear. So here is where you have the actual FDA definition of what they mean when they say a drug has passed their approval and now can be called safe and effective. It means if the drug is used in the right patients in the right way at the right dose and there aren't other drugs that are contraindicated taken with it, that, this is the important part, the benefits outweigh the risks. So... My question is, if you have a situation like this happening with Vioxx and a bunch of people have died and it's found that information was withheld, why do we not hear about what happened with mumps in Ohio? Yeah, I mean, you bring up mumps. There's these mumps outbreaks that are taking place all over the nation um, right now. We've been watching them in our news and most of these mumps outbreaks are um, just very – the larger population are vaccinated. Usually over 90% of the people getting mumps in these outbreaks uh, state to state are fully vaccinated. This is something the FDA saw several years ago in Ohio and asked that Merck uh, had – they said you have to reevaluate the efficacy of the mumps strain – uh, in your MMR vaccine, because it appears that it's not working. We need to see proof that th that this mumps strain of your vaccine is actually working. And uh, we have uh, two whistleblowers now that came forward. This is not the story I reported. This is a totally different whistleblower story. Right. Two whistleblowers from inside of Merck, scientists that were doing the safety testing and efficacy testing around the mumps vaccine. And what they tell us now in court and why this is in court is they came forward and said uh, we couldn't get the vaccine to work. It had no, almost no efficacy, very, very low, wasn't reaching the threshold the FDA demands. So then we were asked to do things like use rabbit's blood instead of human's blood to try and show that the immune response was high enough uh, to the vaccine when none of these tricks worked. Uh, essentially, we hear from these whistleblowers that they just went in and wrote in fake numbers 
right into the data tables of this scientific study. Merck tried to get that uh, thrown out of court, this case. I think it was, I mean, might have been a year or two ago that the, the court said, no, this case is moving forward, and it is moving forward. So this is now two different whistleblower stories. So I want to make sure that um, our listeners are able to do their own research. It's always so important never to believe or trust anything that you hear until you've gone out and vetted it yourself. In fact, if anything, if I hear a person bring up something that agrees with the perspective I have, I am even more aggressive at vetting that information because I am very leery of being biased and trusting something just because it proves my current opinion. To me, if my opinion changes, that's a good thing. It means I learned something new. So I want to give a couple names here real quick. So specifically, the two former Merck scientists who are suing Merck and alleging that the there was a efficacy fraud with the MMR vaccine. Their names are Stephen A. Crawling and Joan Lokowski. So it's W-L-O-C-H-O-W-S-K-I. You can definitely find this. They are former Merck virologists who blew the whistle in August of 2010. Have you heard about this? Have you, my listeners, heard about this? Probably not. Um, However, I heard about it. In fact, I was talking to my local representative, Eileen Cody, about this two years ago in Olympia. So the information filters out there for the people who are paying attention, but it doesn't hit the main platform of community conversation, which is what the fourth estate is supposed to be, that place where independent journalists are bringing carefully found and corroborated facts to public awareness so we can have a conversation and move forward as a society. But for those of you who are concerned about climate change, you might be frustrated if you think that 20 years ago, 10 years ago, it was really this intentionally held down conversation topic. And that's what's so important for us to understand is that if it's happened before, it it will happen again, and it's probably happening right now. The question is, which topics are being subdued or gagged? I'm going to go ahead and thank our underwriters and those who support Voice of Vashon and allow us to exist. Let's start with Windermere. Voice of Vashon wants to give a big thanks to Windermere Real Estate for its support, making our emergency alert service possible. And support for this program comes from the hardware store restaurant, serving great good food, free Wi-Fi, and signature cocktails in a historic 123-year-old building. The hardware store is the heartbeat of Vashon Island. You know, Del, if you come up here and visit the island, I will take you out to the hardware store. It's actually a pretty cool little building. And they have this sign on the corner in the front. Let me see if I can remember it correctly. My listeners probably know exactly what I'm thinking of. So today's special, you know, instead of like the special like hamburgers or whatever, you know, it's making a play on words. So today's special, so is tomorrow. Ha! I love Vashon. (laughs) (laughs) Great. <laughs> so let's move on to the next um, thing we were going to chat about a little bit. I do want to give you a chance to mention California's ruling about glyphosate since you live in the state. And I'm assuming some of the people who hear this show are going to definitely be in California. And I want to make sure they are informed. One of the things I do personally Dell is if I'm going to buy any type of grain product, I make sure it's organic because what a lot of people think of when they think of glyphosate, which is an herbicide designed to kill weeds, right? 
Yes. Okay. So you've got your open field of dirt and you plant your seeds and you're worried that the weeds are going to outcompete your soybeans or whatever. So you would spray the glyphosate to keep the weeds down. And then, so we have this idea that you keep the weeds down and the plant you want, the crop grows. Most people, if you're thinking about wheat and, and um, other grains that need to dry, um, at the end of a four or five month growing season, when they go out there with the harvesters and they're going to get the wheat or um, I don't know about rice so much, but when they're out there to get the grains, what they used to do historically is they would collect the grain and then they would set it aside to dry it. And it would take like about two or three weeks of the specific process to dry the grain. And only when the grain was completely dry could it then be shipped because it wouldn't mold and it wouldn't, it wouldn't turn bad, Right. So what they discovered was that if you spray glyphosate on the crops a couple of days before you harvest them, they discovered that glyphosate works as a desiccant. So they go out and they spray glyphosate on the fields, and then a few days later, they harvest and immediately package and sell the grain because the glyphosate at that late stage has desiccated the plants and pre-dried the grain on the stock. And now they get to save money by not going through that two or three week period of time of having to dry the crop. That's it. It's scary. And it's really, really scary stuff, glyphosate. I mean, we have something called Proposition 65, which is the Safe Drinking Water and Toxic Enforcement Act of 1986, California has just decided to add glyphosate. Uh, also, so what it, what that did was it said you had to list known chemicals that caused cancer and birth defects and things like that on products that contained these elements. So what California has just uh, decided to do is that they're going to add glyphosate to this list. Well, glyphosate is, as you pointed out, sprayed on all of our uh, wheat or most of our wheat products as a drying agent, but it's also on um, a lot of our genetically modified uh, fruits and vegetables. Essentially, what they did was they created uh, genetically engineered plants that will not die when this deadly chemical is sprayed on them, only everything else around them. Well, now, as, as you know, scientists and, and people have been saying for many, many years, this is a very, very dangerous product and not enough safety testing is being done. Uh, but as I pointed out, the WHO finally ruled on this and said it's probably carcinogenic to humans. And now California is looking at uh, labeling it, which where and the question now becomes in this state, are we going to label every loaf of bread that this could probably be carcinogenic to humans? Are we going to label uh, all of our fruits and vegetables as probably carcinogenic? And, you know, you have all sorts of issues. Yeah. USDA was looking at um, doing a scientific study investigating uh, all foods. Is there glyphosate in the foods? And they've just decided not to do that. Oh. Uh, they've abandoned the decision to investigate yeah. and do research on this, which, again, we're, we're really getting too used to industry taking over and, and our government agencies not protecting the people, but protecting these corporations. It's really it's a growing issue. Yes, yes. You know, it's really fascinating. I think um, um, as a member of the fourth estate, which is basically what prose, poetry, and purpose is, I'm going to just throw out there that as a culture, we have um, we have certain 
beliefs or ideas that just exist there without us even realizing that they're there. So for example, here you have this product that's now considered to be a likely carcinogen. And it's so fascinating for me to hear that the next words out of your mouth, because you're reflecting the modern society is, so now based upon this law, will we label them? And I'm sure a person who lives in Germany would probably say, wait, 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 rewind that. What did they just say? Because in Germany, nitrites and nitrates are illegal in the country. They can only be used in a particular type of a meat preservation process where they are gone by the end of the process. They they said, ooh, nitrites and nitrates cause cancer. So that's bad for Germans. So we're going to require the meat industry, and of course, Germans love their meat, to figure out how to preserve their food without also giving us all cancer. So they found out something's carcinogenic, and they, as a society, say, we don't want that here. This is bad for people. Whereas in America, we find out it's carcinogenic, and we're like, oh, let's just make sure that the label tells people this cereal you're feeding your five-year-old before he goes to kindergarten is potentially carcinogenic. What a fascinating difference, and I think it it comes down to in America, we don't want to ever tell any business ever that they can't sell something. We have this sense that everyone has to be able to sell. Let's just inform the consumer of how bad it might be for you. However, my last guest brought up a great point and said, this was a a guest from my other radio show, Focus On, folks, which um, plays on uh, Sunday at 11 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. on your commute home. And it's Focus On. And this woman, her name's Octavia, and she's from Iceland. And she brought up the point that people in America expect when they buy a car, that it's going to have airbags and seatbelts. Why do we expect that? Because we have established regulations requiring that as a base bottom line requirement for a car to be sold in America. So why is it that in the car industry, we're willing to limit or control or regulate the product, but in the food industry, the food culture in America, we don't want to ever say no to anything. Moving back into medicine, What is going on in the world of medicine? Why are we not having a fun, fascinated, open conversation about Thompson and what happened with the mumps situation? Why are we not talking about this? Do you have an idea, Del, about why there is a shutdown on the conversation? I have some suspicions. I think the fact that given the time of year, but nearly 75% of the advertising and television now is coming from the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, what that means for people that are sitting and watching television at home is that if you're expecting a story that goes against the pharmaceutical industry to come out of the mouth of Rachel Maddow or Bill O'Reilly, or, you know, I, it, I'm not choosing sides. Every single news anchor is their salary is paid by the pharmaceutical industry. So just like on my show, I was told you cannot do that story. That's what they're coming up against when it comes to the pharmaceutical industry. Monsanto is a huge, I mean, it's a, it's a gigantic group that owns many of the products we use. They, too, are large uh, investors in media. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really, really, how are you going to get these stories out there if your job and your salary depends on you making these companies happy? And that's really... I think, you know, where the beginning of this problem is. And then you look at the government, you know, as far as the pharmaceutical industry, the pharmaceutical industry is now the number one most powerful lobby in Washington 
outspending oil and gas two to one for every dollar that the energy sector is, is spending buying politicians and writing laws, pharma's outspending them twice as much. Let's go back and say that one more time, because if there's one thing that Americans today understand, especially after watching the last presidential election and it, admiring, I think, how Bernie Sanders was able to break every possible record out there by crowdsourcing and crowdfunding. $27, you know, um, was the average donation compared to those people who are looking to super PACs to fund their fight for the seat in the White House. Everyone gets it that money in politics is a problem. So let's just go back and highlight that. Tell us again about pharmaceutical lobbyists in Washington, D.C. Pharmaceutical lobbyists are the, now the number one most powerful lobby in Washington. They are outspending oil and gas two to one. Twice as much money is being spent by pharma to, um, to invest in politicians uh, being elected and then sitting in their offices and writing laws, which we are seeing all over the nation, which are forced vaccination laws that are going to take away your option to choose whether you use the products made by this corporate power. Um, that's what's taking place in this nation. And it's a very, very disturbing issue, especially when you cannot even report on it because they are also, as I just pointed out, paying the salaries of the people that would be reporting on it. So, Dell, we're going to take a quick break here for a second because I want my listeners to be able to think about that while I remind them that Prose, Poetry, and Purpose and Voice of Ashon is here due to the generosity of our underwriters. Support for this program comes from Island Escrow, Vashon's only independent escrow company providing comprehensive service for all types of real estate transactions since 1979. You can call them at 206 463 3137. Support for this program also comes from Northwest School of Animal Massage. NWSAM has something for every animal lover. Workshops, professional courses, and blended learning options that allow flexibility as students learn large and small animal massage for professional certification or to take special care of beloved pets. More information at northwestsam.com. That's NWSAM.com. So you have the movie Vaxxed, documentary film. You had to figure out how to try to cram some really amazing information into a small documentary film period of time. How long is the film? film is almost, I think it's 91 minutes. You, right. You know, you're always trying to hit that 90-minute mark. It came very close. Right. Uh, it's, it's really been a phenomenon, the film. I mean, we got kicked out of Tribeca Film Festival, right. and then Robert De Niro made it about face on the Today Show and said that he thought everyone should see the film. It was his festival. So there's been, oh, I mean, that just sort of skyrocketed our visibility. And- now that's got to be interesting. There's got to be, I don't know if you can tell it, it, there's got to be an inside story because obviously he came under certain pressures that caused him to choose to actually remove it from the festival. But I remember him coming out and making a big public stink about how he wasn't happy about it. Can you want to give us any yeah. of the backstory? Well, well, all I can say is, you know, we were concerned once we were accepted as Tribeca. I had reached out to them to say, you know, the moment you announce this film, 
Um, it is it's very troubling information, both against the government agency and um, the pharmaceutical industry. And if you think about, like, think about Citizen Four, which is about Edward Snowden. Right. When that film released, everybody that made the film was out of the country and hiding. Right. So there are moments as filmmakers, you realize what you have and what you're about to bring to the public. And I was trying to let Tribeca know this isn't just an ordinary documentary. This may be the biggest most important government cover-up story of my lifetime. And they were like, well, hey, everybody thinks their, their documentary is controversial, and they just didn't really care. And so mm-hmm. sure enough, the moment they announced the film, all hellfire rained down on Tribeca. Right. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry started proclaiming that Tribeca had lost its mind. Why were they showing this film? Media came out against it. And all we knew is that, you know, Robert De Niro was holding Puff for about five or six days. He even reached out to us and said, look, we are coming under immense pressure here. Are you positive you've got the evidence to stand behind this film? And we said to him, look, instead of taking our word for it, would you like to speak with Congressman Bill Posey down in Florida, who has since sat and interviewed Thompson himself and has as a, a body of scientists that are looking over the 10,000 documents uh, he's provided because Bill Posey stood before our Congress and demanded that, that Thompson be subpoenaed, saying the American people believe that we are here making sure that they're safe. They need us to tell them the truth. We must get to the bottom of this. Well, that has not happened. Right. Congress has not done that job, but Robert De Niro did meet with Bill Posey in the middle of all this controversy, and after that, he stepped forward and said, we're standing behind the film, it will screen, and then I don't know what happened in the 36 hours after that, that all of a sudden, it didn't matter what he had said publicly, and then they just about faced and and still kicked us out of the festival. And right. all we know is that when they called us and said, You're, we are withdrawing you from the festival, and we were obviously upset and asking for reasons. What was the problem with the film? Was there something we should have the ability to defend whatever issue you have? In the end, they said, the Sloan Foundation has been one of our primary donors from the beginning of this festival. There is nothing we can do. Who's the Sloan, Sloan Foundation, Foundation obviously is the, the, um, the nonprofit arm of Sloan Kettering a major, you know, medical um, institution. So that's what happened behind the scenes. Then on the news, suddenly they said other filmmakers uh, didn't want the film in there. I can tell you, and any, ask any filmmaker you know, if they can imagine a scenario where you've been accepted into arguably one of the greatest film festivals in the world that you would threaten to pull your own film because some other film is getting more attention that would never happen, not in a million years. No, no, it wouldn't. I actually, my you know. son was, um, my son was actually in a film that went all around the world to a whole bunch of festivals and won a number of awards. And I couldn't believe that an artistic community, and this is why I doubted that other filmmakers were threatening to leave, the idea that they would demand censorship when you are, when you step into the world of art and free speech and free movie making and all of that 
The one thing you know is that if the other person doesn't have freedom to create their vision, then I'm going to lose my freedom to create mine. The reason I would support some, you know, crazy KKK group in Idaho walking down the street once a year having their little rally is because it supports my freedom to show up on that same street with my own signs to offer an alternative viewpoint or anywhere else that I want to stand up and share my thoughts. And there's a that famous thing out there where, you know, injustice for one is injustice for all. Well, lack of freedom for one is lack of freedom for all. So I found it really worrying that a film was censored by an artistic community. Yeah, and it's really scary because, I mean, for me, you know, I, I now recognize that we've lost control of our television. But certainly I thought if I made a movie that that was a place where free speech still existed. And then to be kicked out of uh, not just Tribeca Film Festival, also the Houston World Fest down in, in um, Texas, and then banned from several movie chains and things like that, you realize that, you know, what I say to people is just just imagine for a moment, let's say that I am telling the truth, that I didn't just leave my Emmy Award-winning job on a whim to create a hoax that I actually risked my whole career for a reason. Mm -hmm. And I need to get you this truth that I have uncovered as a journalist. How am I going to get it to you if all of television is owned by the exact industry that I'm calling out and uncovering the facts about? And now the same industries are threatening the film festivals, which are the only way me with this tiny little film, no funding can become visible enough so that you know there's a story worth watching. Right. This is, we're in a dangerous, dangerous place where no one's going to be able to get new information that are, is affecting your life and the health of your children and our, and our future as, as a species, not to overstate the, the fact of the matter. You know what I have found really fascinating in the last 20 years that I've been involved um, in this issue? I'm an informed consent advocate, and um, there's labels everywhere because our entire society is saturated with manipulative tools that are being used to try to make people think things about other people, judge other people, assume things about other people. So let me throw this out there. Um, I have two children who are 15 and a half and 18 and a half. Both of them are partially vaccinated on a delayed schedule. So um, in 1997, 98, when I was pregnant with my first son, having come from a medical background family, watching my stepdad go through medical school, living in hospitals practically because my mom worked nights and, you know, growing up, hanging out with nurses. I mean, I am medical family background. I'm just, I literally used to sit around and flip through the journals that my stepdad would bring home. And I'd be looking at really weird pictures of really sick people with really weird conditions. And that was what I did as a child. So I've got a really strong comfort level with the medical background. And then I have my own kids and I said, okay, I want to understand what's going on with vaccines. And I learned what I needed to know to make decisions about what was right for my kids. And the reason I had that choice is because of the informed consent ethic. And the informed consent ethic, basically it's two things, informed consent. You are supposed to walk into the privacy of your doctor's office 
and be able to receive information. And this is written out, you are supposed to receive information about the pros and the cons of the recommended medical intervention, whatever it is they want you to do, and then the pros and cons of not taking that advice. And they are supposed to provide you with information about alternatives. So imagine you are 62 years old and you have breast cancer and you walk in to talk to your doctor. Do you want your doctor to say, well, look, you only have one option. It's chemotherapy. It's this brand. It's this way. That's what you got to do by now. That's not what happens. In fact, when people go in and talk to their Oncologist? Yeah, you go in and talk to your oncologist, and they are going to answer a lot of questions. They're going to direct you to places to get new information. You're going to talk to all your friends. They're going to tell you about so-and-so who worked with so-and-so in Texas or here or there. And you're going to sit around and research this yourself and get a bunch of information and go back to your oncologist and say, I took your advice. I talked to all these people. I did research on the Internet. Here's what I'm thinking I want to do. What do you think? And it's an ongoing conversation. So you at the age of 62 with breast cancer, you have the right to all of that. And the informed consent ethic means no coercion is put on you, no force. You get to make your own decision of your own free will based upon lots of information. The exact opposite is happening when parents with the most important person in their life, their child, walks into a doctor's office. Absolutely. I mean, and, you know, to point out that, We've had informed consent to really just recently in many of these states, as I pointed out, the laws are changing right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But with informed consent and the right to choose, you know, really statistically across the nation, over 95 percent of the kids in school are vaccinated, which is which is, you know, well inside of the, you know, the herd immunity discussion that Mm -hmm. they try to make. So this whole thing is built on nothing's changed. There isn't some giant growth in the unvaccinated community. Mm-hmm. They've always been here since the beginning of smallpox and polio vaccines. There have been people that use other modalities for health, organic foods, acupuncture, you name it, homeopathy. These are all things that have worked for different people. Um, and we've allowed for that because this country is based on freedom of ideals, freedom of thought. Uh, which is where medicine comes in. And now we're watching medicine leave science and turn into much more of a religion. It's really Mm -hmm. scary that you can't ask appropriate questions of the vaccine program without having them try to destroy your career, which we watch time and time again. I know that sounds like a drastic statement, but everybody's seen it. We saw it when Bobby Kennedy stepped forward just, I think, two months ago now. And Bobby Kennedy is a Perfectly credible guy who we've, we, you know, many of us that live in Seattle and California, the liberal progressive world that have, have supported this guy as he's fought against the large corporations to clean up our water, clean up our air, keep mercury out of fish. Now all of a sudden he comes forward saying, I would like to investigate the safety of vaccines and specifically in his mind, the mercury that is we, we know is in vaccines. The right. second most toxic substance on earth is mercury. That's why he started the mercury um, project. Uh, so what right. is the problem? And, and what I say to scientists, having people that believe it's safe before they go in and proving it's safe in the end, I have real concerns that the appropriate amount of skepticism is not involved in the science around vaccines. And I think the re- response the Vaccine Safety Commission 
proves my point. One of the questions that comes up a lot is, um, what are what is it that makes people so uncomfortable? And I think there's two questions there. One question is, who is intentionally making this an uncomfortable conversation? And that's going to have a different answer than why are we as sort of, you know, driven by our reptile brain? Why are we as animals made uncomfortable? And what we do know on the answer to that question is that there is sort of, there's a very historic fear of disease. Diseases were historically things that we couldn't control that were that would kill without reason you you know there there's a lot of understandable reasons for why we are emotionally triggered by and frightened of disease what's fascinating though to me is that you know i live in a very very liberal bubble here on vashon island and their response is no i trust and believe those words come up a lot i believe my doctor i trust the CDC, you know, those are religious terms. Scientists don't say, I believe and I trust. Scientists yeah. say, I have observed, I have done five studies in a row with the exact same results, no variation. You know, that's how a scientist talks. And, you know, we really have a lot of people who are shifting into religious thinking around scientific topics. Well, I think I think one of the major problems is something I deal with is I've been traveling the nation with my film and talking to politicians. Um you know, we've been led to believe that this is the greatest invention of the 20th century. That So it's really, I think, the holy grail of medicine as we know it. We also have to, the problem we have is, you know, almost all of us have vaccinated our children. And to have to come to the conclusion that we have possibly put toxins in them that they can't get rid of or may have caused their ADD, ADHD, or asthma, or you know, diabetes or autism or, you know, the list goes on and on of this incredible rise in chronic illness and, and autoimmune disease and neurological development problems um, to accept that we did that to our children, even though, you know, the proof is it's not our fault. And the doctors that, that, that injected our children were lied to by the CDC I think it's really hard for us to delve into a place mm -hmm. where we are going to discover we were actually really wrong. And I need to warn you that the future of the pharmaceutical industry is the vaccine program. There are 300 vaccines in the pipeline. They are going to be continuously continuing to vaccinate not only your child as they grow older, but if you go to the, the uh, Health and Human Services website, there's this program called Healthy People 2020 for all adults, too. Mm -hmm. This is about the largest money-making money grab the world has ever seen, and our government is in lockstep to force it upon us. Right. And it once again, it's you know, like I think you said, you know, good people wouldn't do this, and a lot of people continue to believe that the people who are in charge of regulatory agencies are inherently good people who can only do good. But basically, there's a bunch of stuff that's going on right in front of us 
but we're being discouraged from looking at it. We're being told to go look to the left and look to the right, look down and look up, but don't look straight forward at this thing that is literally happening in front of you. And if you start to feel nervous, don't feel nervous because you can trust us. We're good people and everything's fine. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of that. Um, I It's interesting when I'll bring up something like I'll say, hey, here's a link to this really great study that was done by the NIH, that's the National Institute of Health, and the FDA. And you can go straight here to their website and read the abstract or the actual study. And these are the scientists. And isn't this fascinating? And I'll bring that up. And someone will say to me, you know, I just don't have enough time to look into that. I've decided I'm going to trust my doctor. Is somehow magically working 40 hours a week, commuting to and from work, and spending the rest of their time doing careful research. It's not what happens when you're a doctor. There's only so many hours in your week that you can spend keeping up, and there's far too much to keep up on. So it is up to each of us as an individual. It's our body. We were born with it on this planet. It's our spaceship while we are here in this life. And when we die, it's going to be gone, and it's ours to take care of. And so... Learn what you need to learn and take care of your body because ultimately when you walk out that doctor's door, whatever happened, you're the one going home with the results, not the doctor. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're just going to run through this real quick, folks. Um, the movie, the documentary film Vaxxed is not about vaccines so much. It is about this whistleblower situation at the CDC and how it's being kept quiet and and all of that. Would you agree, Dell? That's a good way to describe it? Absolutely. I think it's one of the most intriguing documentaries about government collusion and cover-up you're ever going to see. Uh, everybody, including, honestly, Ben Allen, who was a co-writer on SB 277, the law that forced vaccinated all of our children, he saw it and he said to me, Dell, I was surprised to discover it was not actually an anti-vaccine movie. There you have right. it from the mouth of, of a, of a very pro-vaccine person. And that's the one problem with it, I think, is that the title, unfortunately, gives people, can give them the wrong idea of what it's going to be about. In fact, for me, when I saw it, I turned to my husband and said, this is not about what I thought what it, it was going to be about. You know, so I have the same reaction. So I have been bringing up to people I know, listen, if you're feeling inundated on the issue and you don't want to just see another movie about the topic, this is not that. It's really about what's going on in government. And everyone who cares about what's going on in the government right now, who paid attention over the last year during the presidential election, who knows we have revolving doors in our regulatory agencies, if you don't trust big oil, if you don't trust you know, um, big agro, if you're concerned about that, well, you need to be concerned about big pharma as well. And Vaxxed does a very sober job and a very well, um, how do I put it? You know, the evidence is presented right there, um, core evidence right in front of you. But we're really happy to have it on the island and give people a chance to hang out, talk with each other, and openly discuss in a polite and respectful way the information presented in the film. And if you can't make that screening, it's one of the top streaming videos at Amazon.com, iTunes.com, 
and or if you want to see our website, Baxed.com. Uh, all places you can download it for like $3.95. That is brilliant. Thank you so much for mentioning that. And um, okie doke. So if you want more information, you can go ahead and go to Facebook. And Del, um, your last name, the ca- the T is capitalized, isn't it? No, it's just one word. Big all right. Tree, all one word. Brilliant. So Dell Big Tree, um, as it sounds. And so you were suggesting people could follow you on Facebook if they want to keep up with what's going on. But you also have a new talk show coming out on UBNRadio.com, Channel 2, on Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Now, so a person just goes to UBNRadio.com, and then what do they do next? Uh, once you're at UBN Radio, go to Channel 2. If you're watching at 11 a.m., then I will be there live streaming my show. You can also go in. The show is called High Wire. Uh, you know, death-defying talk without a safety net is, is our slogan. But uh, <laughs> you can also uh, download the podcast there. And that's our show, folks. We are We are officially out of time. <laughs> My name is Marge Twisdale, and you've been listening to my interview with Dell Bigtree. Thank you for joining us today for another episode of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guests, writers, and creators share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time. Dell, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.